We are in a, a new curriculum, a new semester worth of study and teaching and lessons and diving into the book of Hebrews, as you are well aware. This lesson is the second, and it is entitled, Approach Him Boldly. So I'm just going to begin today by asking you to think about a throne. Think about a throne. And it's likely as you think about a throne, you're thinking about loyalty. You're thinking about royalty. You're thinking maybe about kings and queens and a royal court, perhaps a castle. Imagery from textbooks that you were looking at in high school, European history books. Maybe fairy tales come to mind or movies that you've seen. And we remember that when people in earthly kingdoms were granted the privilege to approach a king upon his throne, they were expected to come to that king with humility and submission, more than likely aware of a very lowly position in comparison with the honorable position of a king. And it would likely be that the one who approached the king on his throne felt inadequate, felt super nervous, hesitant to make requests of that king, and obligated to keep a respectful distance. But hopefully, as children of God, when we consider the throne of God, we do so with a very different mindset. You see, while we do want to approach God with reverence and honor, we also look to the Bible and see that he does not intend for us to keep our distance or to remain um, feeling like I said, inadequate. Rather, he wants us to come into his presence, into his very throne room with boldness. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 is our core scripture passage. Read it with me. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Just stop and think about this for one moment. First of all, God the God of the universe, omnipotent, all-knowing, mighty God himself, wants us to approach him. He wants us to come to his throne room, into his very presence. And if that's not enough, he says that we are not to come sheepishly or awkwardly or timidly, but rather boldly. Wow. How do we do this? How do we get to be bold in our approach to the throne of God? Well, I believe that it starts, it really starts with an understanding of what it means for Jesus to be our great high priest. And it continues with realizing that he sympathizes with us. He knows exactly how it feels to be human. Yet, of course, without committing any sin. And the more these truths sink in, the more apt we as his children truly are then to fearlessly and confidently enter God's presence. So today we're going to unpack this passage, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, more thoroughly. And my aim today, my goal for you, is that as you leave this place, you will have three principles firmly established in, in you. Okay? The first is that Jesus is your great high priest. 
The second is that your great high priest knows you and can relate to everything that you experience. And third, because of these things, you can indeed come boldly to him. So that's where we're headed. Getting started initially here with Jesus is our great high priest. Look at 4.14, Hebrews 4.14. Seeing then that we, say that's us. Okay, ready? Say, that's us. That's us. All right. Seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In its simplest definition, a priest is simply one who goes between God and his people. We're going to talk a little here about the Old Covenant. Because under the Old Covenant, God appointed priests to make sacrifices for the sins of the people so that they would be made right with God, they would be cleansed from their wrongdoing. Priests also, in addition to that, they ministered healing. They gave wisdom. They gave direction to God's people. And perhaps you've heard of these biblical priests. There are several, but you might be familiar with Ezra or with Ezekiel, with um, Zechariah. Those are some of the many, many priests that we can read of in the Old Testament. Now, the role of the high priest was even more significant than those that I just spoke of. The high priest was also called Israel's chief priest. And all other priests were subordinate to him. In addition to conducting those duties that I just mentioned, the high priest also oversaw temple finances, temple administration. Hmm? And what is more, the high priest was the only person who was allowed to enter into the presence of God. And for some, you may be wondering, what does that mean? Well, again, in those days, under the old covenant, God's presence dwelt in a section of the temple called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was a very sanctified, separated, set-apart portion of the temple. It was divided from the rest of the space by a huge and very thick curtain. Nothing like any of us have ever seen before. It was enormous. It was because of the effects of sin and the great disparity of holiness between God and his people that the Holy of Holies, this special sanctified place where God dwelt, it could only be accessed one time a year in a very particular manner by his specially clothed intermediary, the high priest. Can you imagine being that person? What a responsibility. And the high priest would burn incense and sprinkle the blood of these sacrificed animals first for his own sins. He had to wear special garments, the whole thing. And then he would sprinkle blood as well for the sins of the people. Some of the high priests that perhaps you're familiar with are Aaron and Phineas and Eli. There were many others. I want to talk a little bit more in depth about one named Melchizedek. Would you like to say that? Melchizedek. Mm -hmm. He was also a high priest, but he was entirely unique from every other high priest. Okay? And the reason for that is that he occupied the roles of both king and priest. These two roles were normally kept very distinct and separate, but not in the case of Melchizedek. He served as both king and priest. And in addition, most priests inherited their priesthood. It was part of the family line, if you will. 
Yet the Bible does not indicate anywhere that Melchizedek inherited his priesthood from anyone. Nor does it say that he ever passed it on to anyone like other high priests did. So this is significant for this reason. Melchizedek served as a type of Jesus Christ. That means he served as a prophetic symbol of Jesus Christ. So for us today, as believers under the new covenant, Jesus fills this unique dual role as high king and high priest. Hallelujah. His priesthood will never, ever be passed to another. There's no reason. He is the one true high king and high priest. Hebrews 7, 15 through 17 explains it this way. A different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi. In other words, it wasn't in a lineage, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The psalmist spoke of Jesus operating as high king and high priest well before, years and years and years before Jesus walked the earth. Friends, the truth is, and it's good news today, you need no other mediator between you and the Father God. And there are some religions that may tell you that you need to rely upon a pastor or a priest or another leader to bring your request to the Lord or to be forgiven by him or receive his blessings, but you don't need another go-between because Jesus Christ is your high priest. Will somebody say amen? And what's more, you could smile when you say amen. I mean, this is, we are so fortunate and so blessed to live right now under this new covenant and these truths. Amen? Jesus offered up his perfect life. He shed his perfect blood and died in your place, in my place. Hallelujah. What happened as a result of this changed everything because his sacrifice brought about a whole new plan. It's what brought us out of an old covenant, old promise, into a new. Our high priest has made us right with God. We don't need to follow God's law absolutely perfectly or make payment for our sins by sacrificing animals. Aren't you so thankful? My, 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 my. It's simply by accepting his sacrifice and fully entrusting your life to him, that you live in relationship with him and therefore have continual access to God. Come on. Oh, what a privilege. When Jesus died on the cross, that curtain that I talked about, think about this. He died on the cross. He gave up his last breath. That, that curtain, that huge, enormous, thick, thick curtain, the one that was there to limit man's access to God. It was torn from the top to the bottom. Right then, we read about in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27, 50, 51. Then Jesus shouted out again and he released his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top 
to bottom. I think we should make this personal. I want you to repeat after me. The curtain has been torn. I have continual access to God. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, when you're reading your Bibles, do you pause long enough to let something soak in and to make a confession about that truth? I hope so. And if not, I've just modeled it for you. When you come upon some good news like this, it's right for you to pause and make it personal. Wow, the curtain was torn so that I have access into the throne room of God because of the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. It's right to get excited about our Bibles and what we're reading. This is the truth. I'm not trying to yell at anyone. I get excited. I get excited. All right. Now, as we shift to look now at the next verse of this passage, let's consider another attribute that qualifies a man for the role of high priest. It's his ability to empathize with those to whom he ministered. God intended for the high priest to be compassionate. You say compassionate. So, Jesus took on human nature when he came to this planet. He lived on earth as a man, truly and fully acquainted with life's challenges. He had to learn some things. Do you know that your Bible says that Jesus learned obedience? Hmm. He went through some things. He experienced pain and disappointment and frustration, just as you and I do. And because of this, Jesus really, really understands. He can relate to us and be compassionate in serving as our high priest. Our great high priest, Jesus, can relate. In his infinite wisdom, God placed Jesus on this earth, as I just said, to live as a man, as a man. And he did that because he knew that a high priest must be one with the people in order to represent them to God. He can't be some high and lofty thing that can't relate. On the contrary, just the opposite. Hebrews 2, 17, 18, look at this. It was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Wait, Jesus can help us in our suffering. Why? Because he suffered. Okay, well, wait. He can help us pass the tests that are given in life. Why? Because he passed the tests. Think of it. When you are struggling to, say, discipline a strong-willed child or deal with a difficult coworker, you seek help from someone who has endured those same types of challenges. It's not profitable for you to go talk to someone whose child is not at all strong-willed They can't relate. You can't relate. You go to people who get it. Hmm? 
The great news here is that we can turn to our high priest with anything and everything because he's experienced anything and everything. You see, Jesus really gets it. In Hebrews 4.15, look what it says. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. That word tempted in the Greek is pyradzo. It means to test, to assay, examine, prove. The word describes the testing of the believer's loyalty, strength, opinions, condition, faith. Pyradzo determines which way one is going and what one is made of. Our high priest He can sympathize because he was in all points tempted. He was tested. He was examined. His loyalty was put to the test. His faith was put to the test. Hmm. When things are hard in my life, it sure helps me to keep in mind that Jesus had his faith in the Father tested as I do. He had constant opportunities to prove his commitment to the promise and the word of God, just like we do. Again and again, if you just think about this, he had all sorts of times where he could have just said, that's it, and thrown in the towel, or let discouragement consume him. He had those opportunities, but he didn't think of it Think of what Jesus endured. He endured harassment by haters. I'm talking about real haters who were trying to kill him. He endured false accusations. He endured persecution and backbiting and gossip and everything that works to thwart the plans of God. This is what he faced. In Isaiah 53, 3, 7, 8, and 9, we read this. He, Jesus, Jesus was despised. Think of that word. Despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him, we, humanity, turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. He was oppressed and treated harshly. He never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. In many, many ways, we see here, and we're starting to get a revelation, are we not? That he had a hard life. See, we don't often think much about this because we're very aware of his wisdom and his teachings and the miracles that he wrought and the people's lives that he changed. But every day, Jesus dealt with really hard things. 
And therefore, he truly understands through experience abandonment and rejection and grief and sorrow. He knows how it is to be treated harshly, to be disrespected. He knows what it feels like to decide to use self-control rather than retaliate with self-defending arguments. He knows full well what it feels like to take the blame for something he never did. He understands it. And through all of this, he endured. He remained faithful to God and held fast to the word he'd had spoken to him. He learned to continually, he learned, he learned to continually put his trust in the Father's perfect will. Think about it, even in the garden, the night before his betrayal, he was under so much anguish that his perspiration, his sweat, wasn't sweat, it was blood. Excruciating, excruciating anguish. He cried out to his father that he did not want to go through with this. I mean, have you ever really thought what that might have sounded like? Do you think he said, Father, I really don't... I would imagine it was more like, Father! But he submitted his will to God's plan, to his perfect plan for our benefit. The fact that Jesus lived on earth with a human nature then enables him to sympathize with our weaknesses and our trials now. He was subject to weakness too. You and I will never experience a test that our high priest hasn't experienced. And I'm going to share with you a realization. This hit me so hard about 10 years ago. It changed my life, and I just want to share it with you, and I'm going to be vulnerable and real. My husband and I were experiencing a lot of heartache in our parenting journey with one of our three children. And we had always believed, always believed that things would go a certain way. And we had planned for them to go a certain way and prayed. And we were anticipating and believing and expecting the best. But what we experienced did not align with any of that. There was disobedience. And there was dishonesty. And there was a lot of pain that we did not recognize or know about. I was exhausted and I was confused and I was deeply hurt by what was going on and I was taking all of it very personally. And I remember sitting on the patio with the Lord. It was a summer day and I just cried out in my despair, Lord, do you have any idea how this feels? And just like that, he responded, Kristen, I know fully how it feels. You see, my children rebel also. Right now, there are millions and billions of my children who disobey me and make empty promises and overlook and even reject the love I have for them. 
and it hurts me deeply. I understand. In that moment, I will tell you that I fell even more in love with my Lord. I drew closer to him in realizing, wow, you really do get it. I am not experiencing anything that you haven't experienced. And I gained a deeper trust in his desire and his ability to make right what was very wrong. He had sympathized with me and my weakness of perspective. And he ministered hope in my heart. And he stirred faith in my spirit to partner with him in praying his promises and his good plans for our child. Church, we've got to be strengthened by knowing that Jesus really does understand. He's been there and has sympathy for us. He knows how it is to love someone who's in bondage. He knows how it is to care for someone who is spiritually dead. He knows how it is to be misunderstood. He knows how it is to be deserted by the closest of companions. He gets it. He's had personal experience on this planet because God knew enough to put him here as a man. He also knows how to pass each and every test of faith. All throughout the Gospels, we read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are fancy words for religious leaders. And those people were testing Jesus nonstop. They'd ask really tricky questions. I know you're familiar with this. All throughout the Gospels, they were trying to trick him, trying to, trying to trip him up in, in his response and deem him blasphemous and have him killed. But Jesus spoke the word of God and passed their tests. The devil also tested him. In Luke 4, 1, we read, Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Jesus is filled with the Spirit. He'd had just now a very significant moment. He was baptized in the river. And the next thing we know, he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. There's that word. His faith is tested by the devil. And one might wonder, why in the world would this be permitted? Have you ever wondered such a thing? I propose two possible reasons. First, God allowed Jesus to be tested by the devil to acquaint him with the reality of spiritual warfare that every person on planet Earth encounters. This makes Jesus more apt to sympathize with us, to understand the spiritual battles that we're in the midst of, and equips him even more to be our perfect high priest. Secondly, by studying the method that Jesus used to pass the tests of the devil, you and I can learn to resist and defeat the devil for ourselves. Let's look at this a little, close, a little more closely. Satan craftily used partial truths from the scriptures to test Jesus. He tried to deceive the Son of God, the King of Kings, our high priest, and ordered him to kind of prove himself three different times. That in each circumstance, what do we see? We see Jesus resisting and refuting with the word of God. Luke 4.4, 4, Jesus answered him. This is the devil. He's talking to the devil. Jesus is talking to the devil. 
saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Luke 4, 8, Jesus answered and said to him, again, Satan, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And in Luke 4, 12, Jesus answered and once again said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. God's word is the final word. Amen? And we see here that Jesus passed each test with the word of God. A little bit later in verse 13, Satan does what? He leaves. Satan departs, defeated. This, this example that Jesus provides is the basis for what we read in James 4, 7. Therefore, Bible says, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. As he was tested, Jesus submitted to God. He submitted to what God had said. He obeyed God's word, resisted and stood up against the devil by declaring truth, and the devil fled. He's equipped us, his children, to do the same thing. Hallelujah. What an amazing high priest we have. First of all, he understands us. Second of all, he has passed every test and helps us to do the same. Surely, these truths ought to compel us to approach his throne with boldness. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. Wow. It, it's just time. It's time that we really understand not only are we forgiven because of the shed blood of Christ, not only are we made clean because of the shed blood of Christ, but we have access to the throne room of God. The English Standard Version speaks of having confidence to enter the holy places. I'm speaking confidence over you as my sisters right now. If any of you have been timid or reluctant or wondering if this is really true for you, I'm speaking confidence Rise up in confidence to accept these are the words of God for you. We've been given authorized access to God's throne. VIP status to enter into his presence. Special entrance has been granted. Have you ever been given special access to an event? Okay. And if you have, what did that afford you? I want to share two things from my life as I was considering this. I grew up in Wisconsin and had a big brother, still have a big brother, but in the time he was playing linebacker for the Green Bay Packers. He was drafted when I was in the sixth grade and he played all so many years until I was teaching sixth grade, 12 years later. It was such an exciting season. Now imagine, that would be like somebody in Minnesota having a brother play for the Vikings, right? So it was hometown team, super, super thrilling. What a thrill. What joy to go to those games. And while other fans were getting in their cars afterwards and driving home, my family and I, we were going through these secret passageways and tunnels and whatever to get outside the locker room and be able to 
congratulate or say better luck next time to him, you know, depending on the, out, um, the outcome of the game. But to see John Anderson, my famously celebrated brother, it was such a wonderful family experience, such a gift. Many, many years later, my daughter Emma and I, when she was in middle school, we went to New York City to see a dear family friend who was starring as Cinderella on Broadway. It was an amazing production, beautiful show. And after the show, we were out on the side of the theater in the alleyway with lots of fans, and the security guard came out and led us through the crowd near the backstage door, up the stairs, down the hallway, into her dressing room. Got to see the beautiful costumes that Cinderella wore, hold the glass slipper, met some of her, her colleagues, other actors and actresses, even got to stand on the stage and look out in this amazing auditorium at a beautiful Broadway theater. The, the icing on the cake was driving in her um, black Escalade in Times Square with her chauffeur. I mean, it was like, pinch me. And yet, I want you to know, in both cases, I just share this, this preferred status had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with anything I had done or any effort that I had put forth. I was given these privileges, both in an NFL locker room and on a Broadway stage, because of my relationship with my brother and our dear friend, Laura. And I'm super grateful for those experiences. But quite honestly, do you know what can rival a professional football locker room experience? or a Broadway production experience. Having access to the throne room of God. <laughs> yeah. And what's more, I did nothing to earn it but be in relationship with Jesus Christ. Wow. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. When you're in relationship with Jesus, Jesus talks to God about you. The Bible calls this making intercession. Consider this, Jesus pleads with the Father on your behalf. He brings your concerns before the Father. So it's super important that you express your concerns, that you express your needs. Hallelujah. Go to him. Go to the Lord, confident that he's hearing you. Be assured he's at work. Philippians 4, 5, and 6, the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, pre present your request to God. There is a way... We are to come to God and a purpose for which to come. We see it at this last passage, Hebrews 4.16. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The verb tense for come actually denotes an ongoing action. So it would be better translated, let us continually come. Let us come and keep coming. Maybe add that to your study book, to your little note page there. It is a continuation, a constant action. 
This is saying his throne room is open 24-7. The Lord is always close. He's always available. We are always to come boldly. What does this mean, come boldly? Parousia, without spokenness, unreserved utterance, freedom of speech, candor, cheerful courage, without reservation. Listen, friends, it doesn't bother God when you're honest with him. He actually loves it. We're supposed to speak freely to him. This is key to apprehending why we come to God in the first place. We come to him without reservation, with boldness, in transparency and truth. So what? So we can lay hold of mercy and grace. Mercy, what is that exactly? It's tender kindness. It's compassion. An alleviation of the consequences of our sin. Hear this. His mercy can be thought of as God's repair work. It's performed to undo the damage that our sins have done. Mercy erases the consequences of our sin. I need his mercy. And grace is God's undeserved help. Grace is his enablement, his power to achieve his plans. We can't accomplish things as he intends without his grace. It's his empowerment. We need both mercy and grace. And as the verse also says, we need his help in our time of need. You might find this interesting. This phrase, help in time of need. It comes from a Greek word, boethia. It was a military word. And it depicted the exact moment when a soldier heard that his fellow fighter was entrenched in battle or captured or struggling in some way. Hearing the news spurred the soldier to take action, rescue his brother, and bring him back to safety. So the point is this. When we get in trouble or are overwhelmed with a situation, need to cry out and tell our Lord Jesus about it. He goes into battle like a mighty warrior to be our defense and to secure our deliverance. Wow. So in closing, let me ask you, are you struggling today? Are you facing what seems to be insurmountable odds? Do you feel pressure in an area of your life? Are you concerned, overly concerned about situations or perhaps loved ones that you care for? Do not try to fend for yourselves for one more moment. Mm -mm. Tell him the situation. Make your request. He will run into battle for you and fight until you're free. Listen, for more than 2,000 years, Jesus has been seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's making intercession to those who come to him by faith. We have a part to play. To come to him by faith. And as you do that... As you come to him boldly and honestly in prayer, filled with faith that he is ready and eager 
to get involved. Your high priest, Jesus, will provide the help that you need to be victorious. That's the truth. Be encouraged and come boldly to the throne. Amen? Amen? Amen. 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 <laughs>